This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. All the terrestrial life on this planet exists because of a substance that we don't fully understand, soil organic matter. So what is soil organic matter? While this may seem like a simple question, it is one that is most complex in the soil field. The actual formation of organic matter is awfully complicated, and there is not a full agreement on how organic matter is created. In simple terms, organic matter is a complex matrix of 50% carbon that forms long, twisted chains connected to oxygen, hydrogen, phosphorus, nitrogen, and most other nutrient elements. Organic matter has some amazing properties. For water holding capacity, organic matter can hold 10 times its weight in water. Every year, a small amount of total organic matter in the soil decomposes. For every 1% by volume a soil holds, it releases 20 pounds of nitrogen. Besides the more well-known effects of increasing water percolation, water holding capacity, and releasing nutrients, it also has more subtle effects, like acting as a chelate for microelements, increasing their availability to plant roots. One question that many people ask is how much material or stover does it take to make organic matter? In a very general sense, it takes 10 pounds of material to make 1 pound of organic matter. Calculated out, that means it takes 100 tons of field stover to increase organic matter just 1%. The increase of organic matter is a long process. It takes years of intensive conservation practices to move the organic matter needle. The majority of field stover is broken down by microbes and never truly becomes something that we would consider organic matter. Also, not all organic matter is the same. Organic matter is divided into a number of pools, which are largely based on how easy they are to break down. Some organic matter only lasts a couple of years, while some is so tightly bound the microbes can't get to it and can last centuries. This is why over-tilling a field quickly reduces organic matter as it breaks up the soil particles and allows the microbes to get to it. Not all carbon material that goes into the creation of organic matter is the same either. In general, material high in lignin is harder for microbes to break down. To break down lignin, microbes need some seriously strong attack methods that involves creating strong acids to break the bonds that hold the lignin together. Hemicellulose is the next level and is slightly easier for microbes to break down, while cellulose is the easiest for microbes to consume. Field stover like corn and soybean stalks and wheat straw is fairly high in lignin. There are a couple of different theories on how organic matter is formed, but both of these processes is how it's made. The lignin theory is the idea that while some of the lignin gets chewed on, microbes are never able to fully break all the lignin down before it gets bound into a complex. The polyphenol theory is the understanding that organic matter is the byproduct of microbes and plants, where simple carbon chains, the polyphenols, bind together in large chains to form large organic matter complexes. By these theories, organic matter is created by both the lignus material left behind in decaying plants, but also by the sugars and acids that living plants pump into the soil to feed the microbes. No matter how it is formed, organic matter has a unique and dramatic role within the soil. Any effort to build organic matter will need to be a long-term plan, but the added benefits are diverse, large, and lasting. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, livestock production agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your livestock production agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Pink eye is a costly disease for producers during the summer and early fall. Understanding can go a long way in reducing pain and discomfort, as well as help the productivity of the operation. Pink eye is initiated by direct irritation to the cornea, 
followed by bacteria invading the lesion. Physical cornea irritation can be caused by the sun, dust, or tall plants. Face flies spread the bacteria among animals. Excessive tearing, blinking, and squinting are all early signs of pink eye. The excess tears will often drain down the face collecting dirt and grime, visible from a distance. The eye becomes extremely red and the cornea becomes white and cloudy. The clear cornea can form an ulcer and even rupture in severe cases. White scars are healed lesions and they may clear over time. Injectable, long-acting oxytetracycline antibiotics are used for treatment with good effect. There are prescription options as well. If pink eye is an issue, a veterinarian has the tools and expertise to help in the face of an outbreak. An eye patch glued to the affected eye will help with the healing process. By protecting against sun and wind, and the eye patch physically blocks flies from feeding on tears, further spreading the bacteria. Prevention starts with optimal herd health. Quality forage with vitamin and trace mineral supplementation supports a strong immune system. The immune system can be weakened from stress due to shipping, weaning, weather, or changes in feed. A vaccine program against respiratory pathogens like IBR and BVD is important to help strengthen the immune system. These viruses can contribute to the severity of pink eye outbreaks. There are commercially available pink eye vaccines, but fundamentally they have some downfalls. There are many subtypes, many of which can be isolated from just one infected animal. The vaccines have several strains, but the different strains are not cross-protective. So, if a different subtype of the bacteria infects the animal, disease may still occur in a vaccinated critter. Vaccine options should be discussed with your veterinarian. If pink eye vaccines are used, these products must be administered at least four weeks prior to pink eye season to ensure adequate response. And some vaccines require a booster. Other ways to help prevent the disease is to manage the environment. Mow tall stands of grass and weeds in the pasture or use dust mitigation strategies to reduce scratching and irritation potential. Fly control is also very important. Fly control measures may include fly tags, pour-on products, or dust bags. Providing simple shade structures can decrease the irritation of the sun during the middle of the day. Also, Isolating infected animals may decrease the spread to other animals. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Fall is quickly approaching and with fall comes breeding season for sheep and goats. August is a good time to start making plans for breeding season, if you haven't done so already, and to evaluate your does and ewes to make sure they are in good condition before breeding. Does and ewes that have good body condition are more likely to be bred and successfully have lambs or kids in the spring. The body condition score of does and ewes should be evaluated before breeding season. Body condition refers to the fleshiness of an animal. 
To know the body condition score of a doe or ewe, producers should feel over the ribs and on either side of the spine by pressing down with their fingers to determine the amount of fat cover a goat or sheep has. After feeling the amount of fat cover, a body condition score can be given. For sheep and goats, body condition scores are given on a scale of 1 to 5, 1 being emaciated and 5 being obese. Does and ewes should have a body condition score of 2.5 to 3.5 at the beginning of breeding season. If does and ewes become too thin, failure to reproduce, low twinning rates, and low weaning weights can be a result. If they are too fat, it can result in does and ewes developing pregnancy toxemia or having trouble giving birth. If does and ewes have a body condition score lower than 2.5, they need to be placed on good quality pasture and or supplemented with grain. Grain that has a crude protein level of 10 to 12% should be supplemented at a rate of half a pound to one pound of grain per head per day for at least two to four weeks before the start of breeding season. Increasing the amount of grain fed before breeding season. Increasing the amount of grain fed before breeding season is also referred to as flushing and can increase the lambing and kidding percentage and the number of females cycling earlier in the breeding season. Bucks and rams should also be examined prior to breeding season. Their body conditions should be determined the same way it is for does and ewes. Prior to breeding, bucks and rams should have a body condition score of 3 to 3.5. If bucks and rams are too thin during breeding season, they will have decreased stamina, which can lead to a longer lambing and kidding period. However, if rams and bucks are overconditioned, they may lack vigor to breed large numbers of does and ewes. If rams and bucks are too thin, they should be given supplemental feed starting roughly a month before breeding season to increase their body condition and ensure they are in good physical shape. Thank you, David. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. With the recent storm damage, some people are needing to find replacement trees. Fast-growing plants can be a blessing when you need something in your landscape as soon as possible, but come with their own set of drawbacks. Some of the fastest-growing trees aren't native to North America and run the risk of becoming invasive. Even native trees can turn brittle if growing too fast, and the faster a tree grows, the more likely it is to have subpar structure. However, there are some good compromises between fast growth and strong trees. Oaks aren't typically known for for their fast growth, but chinkapin and red oaks are the exception to this rule, each growing over two feet per year. Chinkapin oaks are one criminally underrated and underplanted tree, but are gaining more popularity in landscaping, so they are becoming easier to find in garden centers. They are also one of the best white oak species for southeastern Kansas and come with my full recommendation. However, don't try to fit square pegs in round holes there may be better choices for your specific location. If you ever have any questions about putting a specific tree in a certain spot, your local extension office can help you find the best tree for what you need. 
Because fast-growing trees quickly outgrow arm's length, it will take extra diligence during the tree's early years to prune out any poor branching structure before the tree's growth kicks into high gear and you need any extra equipment to do corrective pruning. Most trees need a strong central leader with multiple horizontal limbs, a growth pattern called X-current growth. Some species, such as redbuds and ornamental pears, fight against this convention, instead sending multiple branches upward. This is known as D-current growth. This results in nice-looking canopy shape, but creates a potential point of failure in strong winds. The point at which these upward stems diverge is called the crotch, and the lower that this crotch occurs on the trunk, the more likely you are to experience a total tree failure. Trees that already have weak wood have a much higher risk of failure, so ornamental pears, silver maples, ashes, and pecans all need substantial corrective pruning when they are still small. When buying a tree from a nursery, you have the option of getting smaller individuals or larger individuals. There are pros and cons to each. Buying a larger tree from the get-go gives you a head start towards a mature tree in the landscape. Most larger trees will also be set in their branching structure, so trees with the right structure from the get-go will need minimal correction, if any. However, larger trees are a bigger money investment, are harder to transport, and will go through greater transplant shock once you get the tree in the ground. If you are okay with providing extra care to the tree in its first year until the transplant shock wears off, then a larger tree might be worth the investment. On the other hand, if your tree needs corrective pruning, if you are concerned about the effects of transplant shock, or if you are trying to save money, a smaller individual is usually worth the extra time that it will take for the tree to grow. For every tree, the best time to be looking to plant trees is in the fall. The soil is still warm from the summer, which encourages root growth, but the temperatures are falling, but still relatively warm, and you can get an idea of what fall color your tree will have before you buy it. Your extension office will have publications on how to plant and care for newly planted trees to give your investment the best possible chance of paying off. For more information about today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.